Hey, do me a favor. Everybody say, search me. Nah, that makes some of y'all nervous. Makes you think of police officers. We're not searching anybody today. Uh, But that is what this message is about today. It's an invitation for God to search our lives. You know, we have the ability to search anything we want at any time using our phone and Google now. And um, I don't know if, if, if you're in here and you're actually under the age of, say, I don't know, um, 25, you, have to, you used to have to actually get a phone book out. Come on, who remembers? You had to get the phone book out and actually find the number to something. Uh, some people would keep little books and like write down numbers, you know, and, and, uh, but, but today we can search anything. I saw a, uh, a graphic the other day um, that said, I refuse to learn how to do anything new until someone convinces me I won't have Google. I just thought that was brilliant, right? That was great. Did you know that Google handles more than 1 billion searches a day? 1 billion, okay? And uh, you can actually, you can dig around, you can actually find out uh, what the most popular searches are. You can even break them down by state. So once I found that out, I wanted to know, what did the people in the great state of Kentucky search most for in 2015? Right? The state of Washington searched the word Syria, okay? The most, Syria, the, like the, the nation, Syria, country, uh, Syria. Colorado searched water on Mars. Vermont searched climate change. So surely the state of Kentucky matched the intellectual prowess <laughs> of states like Vermont, Colorado, and Washington. Something really that lets you know we are concerned about weighty matters in life. No, no. In 2015, the most unique search in the state of Kentucky as compared to other states was the phrase, dusty roads. Dusty roads. Now, some of you don't know who that is because you've been too busy, like, reading a book or getting an education. Dusty Rhodes uh, was a professional wrestler, and I brought a picture for you to see him so that you could see what has captivated the minds of Kentucky residents in 2015. So congratulations, Kentucky. We did it. Let's give ourselves a hand for Dusty Roads in 2015. So today is about searching, an invitation for God to search our lives. And it's not an original thought. Um, We're actually stealing it from King David in Psalm 139 when he said, Search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Everybody say, search me. Last week, we started a series called Why It's Called Amazing Grace. That's all about, uh, you guessed it, the grace of God, amazing grace. Because grace is what makes Christianity unique. I don't know if you knew that or not, but all other religions, all other belief systems in the world, Buddhist, Hindu, the Jewish covenant, Muslim code of law, all of these offer a way to earn approval. If you, if you do what they say and you follow their rules, you can earn approval. But only Christianity, only Christianity makes God's love unconditional. No strings attached. And it's hard for us to accept this because we've been trained to believe that God, loves, that God loves us conditionally. God's love for us is a conditional love. It's that religious part in all of us 
that, uh, that believes if, everybody say if, if we clean up our act, if we give more money, if we come to church more, then God will love us and bless us. But listen, that's not true. It's not true. That's religion. That's not Jesus. Religion says if, but God says no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter what you have ever done, God says, I am madly in love with you. God is not Zeus. He's not up in the sky, you know, waiting to rain down lightning bolts. He's not a principal. He's not a parole officer. We said last week, and it's so true, that God is a love-sick father. He's a love-sick father who just wants, just longs for a relationship with his children. Now, if you weren't here Last week, let me encourage you to go to, um, go to the website, find, find the message, listen to it. I don't say this a lot, but it's one of the most important sermons you'll ever hear because it's about how much God loves you. And all of us need to be reminded, again, of just how much that, that God loves us. No strings attached. It's all about the amazing grace of our Father, that God loves us no matter what. And that's where we left off. That's where we left off, that God loves us no matter what. So the natural next question is, okay, Jason, if God loves me no matter what, then why does it matter what I do? If God loves me no matter what, why does it matter what I do? Has anybody ever wondered that question before? Anybody ever thought that? Um, Maybe you thought of it like this. Um, If God's love is unconditional, then does that mean that I can do whatever I want and he will forgive me? Art critic uh, Robert Hughes tells a story about a convict sentenced to life in prison on a maximum security island uh, off the coast of Australia. And one day, for no apparent reason, this convict um, turned on a fellow prisoner, beat him senseless, and killed him. And authorities shipped the the convict, uh, the prisoner, back to the mainland to, to stand trial for this murder. And he gave this straightforward, passionless account of, of what he did, didn't deny it, showed no sign of remorse, and uh, said he didn't hold any grudge against the victim. And so the judge, confused, said, then why did you do it? Why, why did you, why'd you do it? And the prisoner told him he was sick of life on the island. It was a brutal place. He saw no reason to, to, keep, on, to keep on living. And the judge said, well, yeah, I, I understand all that. I can see why you might you know, drown yourself in the ocean or something, but why murder? Why did you kill this other prisoner? And the the prisoner looked at the judge and says, well, I figure it like this. I'm a Catholic, and if I commit suicide, I'll go straight to hell. But if I murder, at least they'll let me leave the island for a little while. I can confess to the priest, and God will forgive me before my execution, right? It's the same logic. The prisoner has the same logic as Hamlet did who wouldn't kill Uncle Claudius in the story. He wouldn't kill Uncle Claudius while he was praying in the chapel, lest, you know, in our case, he might be forgiven uh, his sin and, and go straight, straight to heaven. See, sometimes learning that God's grace has no strings attached and is readily available to us causes us to go down this path of premeditated sin. I mean, after all, God will, God will forgive us, Right? And I just want today, we're, we're going to spend some time diving into this, but in case you have to leave early or you're ADD and you tune out, I just want to answer this question right up front. You say, Jason, God will forgive me, right, no matter what. Let me answer the question. Yes. Yes. Your heavenly Father 
loves you. He is crazy about you. And as long as you want forgiveness, he gives it to you. He gives it to you. We, um, we, have, a, we have a rule with our kids. You've heard me talk about it. But we have this rule in our house that says, if you tell me the truth before I find out the truth, then you won't get punished. Because we really want to cultivate honesty. It's one of our values as a family. We want it to be at the top of the list. And so if you will tell me the truth to my kids, if they'll tell me the truth before I find out the truth, then they won't get in trouble. And Sadie is now seven years old, and she's starting to figure out how this works. And Sadie is starting to test the limits of the grace of her father, okay? And so she will come to just double check, and she'll say, Dad, now, Dad, now, if I tell you the truth, I won't get in trouble no matter what, right? I say, Sadie, that's right. She's like, no matter what, right, if I tell you the truth. I say, that's right. And she'll go, okay. And then she'll just leave. She won't tell me nothing. She'll go do whatever she's going to do. Then she'll come tell me about it. And she'll say, Dad, now you said I wouldn't get in trouble no matter what. See, she started, she, she, she realized that grace was available. And so she began to think about her confession before the crime, knowing she could escape the consequences. And isn't that what we all do to some degree? Like we, we're all hardwired at some level to test the limits of whatever boundaries have been defined. Come on, when the speed limit's 55, you go 60. Come on, when it's 65, you go 70. If the boss says be in at 9, you show up at 9.02. I mean, that's just like we all test the limits of the boundaries that have been set for us. And so if God loves us no matter what, if God gives us amazing grace with no strings attached, what is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus? It's, it's an important question. What is my responsibility in this relationship with a father who is gracious and loves me no matter what? What am I responsible for? What am I supposed to do? What am I required to do? Those are all valid Really valid questions. But luckily, we don't have to guess this morning because the Apostle Paul answers that exact question for us in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6. So we're going to read from there today. If you have a Bible, get your Bible out, get your phone out. If not, it's going to be up on the screen. I would encourage you to take some notes today because we're going to say a lot of stuff, throw a lot of stuff at you today. And then also we're going to eventually end up in Psalm 139. If you want to go ahead and mark that, we're going to be there um, eventually, all right? So we're trying to answer the question, God loves us no matter what, God's grace is available to us no matter what, so what is my response to that? What is my responsibility uh, to, to that grace, for that grace? Romans 5, verse 20, here's what it says. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace, everybody say wonderful grace, became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so Paul is talking about that amazing grace that we've been talking about. He, he says that since Adam and Eve, sin just kept growing and growing and growing, but every time that grace or that, that sin grew, Grace grew even more. In other words, Paul's saying you can't outsin grace. You can't outsin grace. I want some of you to know that this morning. You cannot outsin grace. 
And it's that grace that gives us right standing with God, Paul says. It's always available to us. So then Paul asks the big question in Romans 6, verse 1. Let's keep reading. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? It's a valid question. If, if grace abounds more when there's sin, then why don't we just increase the sin, Paul says, so that grace can increase? It's, it's a valid question. And Paul says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? See, Paul's pretty straightforward. Paul says, don't keep on sinning just because there's grace. It's actually the opposite. God's grace pulls us out of our life of sin. Look at what he said in verse two. He says, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Now, now maybe as we read those words, you would say, wait a second, Jason. I've accepted God's grace. I'm trying to live for God the best I can. But I, I wouldn't say that I have died to sin, like Paul says. In other words, you would say like, um, Sin is still a very real and active part of my life. I don't know that I have died to sin. And I know exactly what you mean, and so does every Christian who has ever lived. See, Paul is not saying here that you received God's grace and all of a sudden sin left your life and you'll never give in to temptation again. That's not what Paul's saying. Matter of fact, that's impossible. And it's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that sin regularly is going to show up and knock on the door of your life. And the Bible says that you and I are inclined to open the door and answer the door and to give in to sin and temptation. That's what the Bible says. So anybody who tells you that, like, once you start serving Jesus, you should never sin again, I know what they're saying. But let me rephrase it. You're still going to struggle with sin even though you've given your life to Jesus. Okay? So the Bible says sin's going to show up and the chances are decent. You're going to give in to that, okay? So Paul's not saying you've died to sin like you're never going to sin again. What Paul means when he says you've died to sin is that sin is no longer the boss. Sin is no longer the boss. It may be that annoying friend that shows up and stays too long sometimes, <laughs> but it's not the boss. It doesn't dictate the terms. See, before grace... When sin said jump, we said how high. When sin said go, we went. We were powerless against sin. It dictated the terms. But when we accepted Jesus and when you accept Jesus and the cross, the power of sin is broken off of your life. It's not gone for good. It's just not in charge anymore because your life belongs to God. So it can show up and it can make suggestions and it can tempt and it can whisper in your ear, but it's not the boss. Paul says, when you accepted Jesus on the cross and you accepted grace, the power of sin was broken off of your life if you want it to. Now skip ahead to verse 12. A lot of scripture that I'm throwing at you. Verse 12, Paul's gonna break it down some more. So he says in verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you, uh, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. There it is. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law 
Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Everybody say freedom. Freedom. I was reading this scripture and um, these scriptures, just knowing where we were going with these messages. And when I came to that phrase, freedom of grace, it really caught my attention because, because freedom is not really a word that we would use to describe what it's like to follow Jesus. All of us in this room have, have at some point and maybe still now believed the lie that following Jesus is about abstaining, that following Jesus is about being handcuffed. And even though you want to, you don't get to. And that's, that's you know, probably why Christians have the reputation of being uptight and boring and mean because, because we're, we're jealous of people who get to do what we wish we could do. But if we did, God would give us cancer or make the you know, car break down. And so we want to, but we don't get to. So we're unpleasant people. Right? That's what a lot of us feel like, what a lot of us think. Well, okay, I've got to have all my fun. I guess now I'll serve Jesus. And Paul says that you get to live in the freedom of grace. He says, look, sin is dead. Don't live in it. Don't live in it. And in verse 12, he says, don't let sin dictate the terms. Sin wants to control you, but God has saved you and forgiven you. And his plans for your life, please hear me, are greater than the sin that wants to be your boss. God's plans for your life are greater than the sin that wants to control your life. And according to Paul, there are two options. I can either live in my sin or I can give myself completely to God. Look at what he says in verse 13. We were dead. But now we have new life. The song says, I was lost, but now I'm found. And as someone who has received God's amazing grace, he says, verse 13, do what is right. Why? For the glory of God. Because you don't live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of grace. Now, you're like, Jason, Thank you for that. But like that was a lot of scripture. That was a lot of information. And I got to be honest with you, I don't really have any idea what you're talking about. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying, okay? What is the freedom of grace? What is the requirements of, uh, of the law? Well, I want you to know that they actually have college classes that teach this, and it takes like a whole semester, okay? I'm going to do it in about three minutes, all right? Three to five minutes, all right? So it's going to be a big-time overview. You got to know that. But I think sometimes we make it harder than it is. And, and so I can give you some really thick books you can read about this, and I would encourage you to read some of that sometime. But I'm going to take three or five minutes, and I want to try to explain to you what the requirement of the law is and what the freedom of grace is, okay? The requirement of the law was the hundreds and hundreds of rules that God gave the Israelite people, okay? It's this right here. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, all right, And it's filled not only with stories, but with laws and commands for the Israelite people. Okay, And they had to follow every one of them. Every one of them. Everyone. And inevitably, they broke the rules because the Bible says that the law was given to prove how sinful we are. So in other words, people would say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow all the rules. And then they would break one pretty quickly thereafter. Anybody ever been there? Okay, so they break the rules. And every time you break a rule, according to what God said in the first five books of the Old Testament, something had to be sacrificed in order for there to be forgiveness for what they did. Remember, Jesus hadn't shown up yet. 
So they would have to find an animal or they would have to find some kind of cleansing process that God had given them so that they could now be forgiven. But guess what? When they broke another rule, they had to make another sacrifice. And then when they broke another rule, they had to make another sacrifice. And they had to live by, according to the standards and the rules that were given. That was the requirement of the law. But then Jesus came. Jesus showed up. And he died on the, uh, on the cross, and the requirement of the law went away. Stick with me for just a second, okay? So in other words, here's what happened when Jesus showed up and died on the cross, all right? Before Jesus, if you wanted to follow God or have a relationship with God or be identified as somebody who knew God, you had to follow this rule book. Jesus showed up, the requirement of the law went away, and now because of Jesus and the cross, hear this, your moral behavior is not what decides whether or not you're saved. Your moral behavior, like some of us in the room who are religious who grew up in that, we just went like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to take that. Somebody already stopped me after the first service. Like, I don't know about all that. I know, it's in there. It's that religious like thing that's just trying to grab hold of us. Listen, your moral behavior is not what determines whether or not you follow Jesus. It's not determines whether or not you're saved. It's not the determining factor. Do you know what the determining factor is? Grace. Grace. As long as you receive it, and as long as you believe in Jesus and the cross, you live in the freedom of grace. Freedom of grace. It's not the requirement of the law. It's not the rule book. It's not the list that everybody has tried to give you and everybody has tried to give me. And we live our lives so afraid of messing up and we live our lives so afraid of disappointing God. So we work so hard to master all of our mistakes, but can we just be honest this morning? Nobody really ever masters their mistakes. Sometimes we trade some mistakes for others Sometimes we give up other sins only to embrace another sin, and we never really master it, but what we do master is the ability to hide what it is that we struggle with. We, we master that for sure. We learn how to hide it, and so we're perceived as righteous, and we're like a child who stays in their bedroom afraid to come out because they don't want to get hurt by their father or disappoint them. It's only when we break away from thinking that we earn God's love by our actions that we can actually change our actions. Please hear that. It's only when we figure out and really accept and, and believe that we are saved by grace, not by works. Moral behavior is not what saves you. And I don't care what your, your, your dad told you, or, or no offense, dad, if you're here with your kid. I don't care what your, your pastor told you growing up. I don't care, and I'm using air quotes here. But what you do does not unsave you. It doesn't unsave you. And I want to be as clear as I possibly can today so that we can break off this religious baggage that's desperately trying to hold on to us. And it's trying to keep us from having a relationship with our Father. Listen to me. You're free. You are free. You're free. You are not bound by the requirement of the law. 
please hear me. And some of y'all, this won't mean anything to you, but for some of us, this will mean a lot to us. So please hear me. Drinking a beer does not send you to hell. Cursing does not send you to hell. Fooling around with your girlfriend doesn't send you to hell. Praise God for that one. Um, Or whatever else that we have added to the list over the years. It does not send you to hell. You know what sends you to hell? Not believing in Jesus. Not receiving his amazing grace. Honestly, you'd have think God would have been smarter about the grace thing and not let everybody know it was available ahead of time. Some of you are like, Jason, when people find out about this, they are totally gonna take advantage. Yeah, welcome to grace. It's amazing. And God knew when we found out that we would test the boundaries and the limits of grace. And we never deserved it and we still don't deserve it. And he gives it to us anyway. He gives it to us anyway. And right now, some of us, we're, we got this religious thing in our ear and we're saying, but, oh, wait a second, Jason. What about the guy who cheated on his wife and lost his family? What about the murderer? What about, and you're thinking about all, all of these scenarios desperately clinging on to some hope that one day moral behavior will be the determining factor. Can I tell you something? As long as the adulterer and the murderer and the whatever else you want to put in there, as long as they're willing to receive the grace of God, God says, you can have it. You can have it. What separates a Christian from a non-Christian is the willingness to admit that we're pretty despicable people and we need the grace of God. That's what separates a Christian from a non-Christian, is being able to say, God, I am a sinner and I need your grace When you are willing to admit that and mean it, God says, you can have it, and you are now a Christian. You are now saved. You are now following Jesus because you recognize your sin and you need God's grace. But here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing about amazing grace. It has a way of changing you. It has a way of changing you. Once you realize that you're free, it causes you to want to honor the grace giver. Isn't that what Paul said in verse 13? He says, you were dead, but now you have new life. So you were dead, now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right. Why? For the glory of God. Paul says, when you realize that you were dead, but now you have life, you just want to glorify God. You just want to magnify God. You want to say, listen, let me tell you about this amazing grace. And you want to use your body and your life as an instrument to do what is right, is what Paul said, so that people will go, man, God is good. And you say, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Chuck Swindoll tells the story about the day he got his permit. This was a long time ago. He's an older gentleman. Got his permit, and his dad tossed him the keys to his pride and joy Cadillac. His dad said, here, son, you can have the car for, for two hours. Go, go and do what you want, all on your own. Swindoll says he got in the car, filled with excitement. The gas tank is, is filled up. He's trying to decide, do I want to go pick up my friends and drive around with them, go to eat? Maybe I just want to go out on the highway and see how fast I can get this car going, and he pulls out onto the road and he doesn't give in to the temptation to see how fast the car can go. Matter of fact, he said he never actually made it to the speed limit. He said he drove around about five minutes and all he could think about was how much he loved his dad and how much his dad loved this car. 
And he said he felt like the worst thing that could ever possibly happen would be for him to come home and have to explain to his dad how he ruined his Pride and Joy Cadillac. So he got up there, he turned around, he came back home. Ten minutes later, he walked inside. His dad looked kind of confused. He just tossed the keys to his dad and he said, Dad, thanks but no thanks. Thanks but no thanks. That's the power of grace. You're free to do whatever you want. Something happens when you realize how much God loves you that you're able to look at the unlimited possibilities of what you could do and you say thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Go do whatever you want. Go wreck the car. If you want, you can go wreck the car. Guess what? You will still be his son or daughter. Come on, parents. You're telling me there's something your kid could do where you'd say you're not my son or daughter anymore? Stop it. Go wreck the car. But the more you fall in love with God, the more you want to honor him. And the thought of going back to old ways that he saved you from, it breaks your heart. And you begin to look at the sin that, you, you, that, that used to be your boss and you say, thanks, but no thanks. Listen, not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you have to, but you want to. I want to I close today with, uh, I want to show you everything that we just talked about from just a little bit different perspective. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139, if you want to read along with me, you can find that. I want to read a, a few verses together. It's actually 24 verses. We're not going to read the whole psalm, but I want to read three parts of it to, to, to just explain again what it is that we're getting to in this grace and the responsibility of our lives. Psalm 139 verse 1 says this. It says, oh Lord, you've examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Those are pretty intimidating words. God knows everything about me. He knows my thoughts, he knows my words, he knows my intentions. He sees me at all times. And let's just be honest, that's not good news for me. And that's not good news for you. As a matter of fact, I know me pretty well. I know me pretty well, better than you know me. And let me just tell you, you see the best version of me. You see the best version, and I see the best version of you. And having access to the darkest, deepest parts of my thoughts and actions would turn anyone off. So if I were God, knowing what I know about me, I can be sure that I would not be happy with who I am. Which makes, what, which makes verse 17 that much more incredible. Look at verse 17. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. God, knowing everything about me, all the dirtiest, most despicable parts, can't stop thinking precious thoughts about me. That is amazing grace. We serve a God who knows everything about us, but still can't get us off his mind. And I love the last line. David says, and when I wake up, you're still with me. Like when I read that, it just made me think like, you know that really, really stupid thing that you did last night? You wake up and God's like, still here, still here. 
You can't get rid of me. For some reason, God stays with me. And he just keeps thinking precious thoughts and precious thoughts and precious thoughts. Now look at verse 23 and 24. This is what we started with at the beginning of today. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. When you place all three of these together, we get the perfect picture of what a grace-filled, loving relationship with God looks like. You ready? Number one, God knows the worst parts about us. Number two, he can't stop thinking precious things, thoughts about us. God is madly in love. Number one, he knows you, the worst parts of you. Number two, he's madly in love with you. Number three, we give permission to God to search us and point out anything that offends him. And we ask him to lead us along the path of everlasting life. Today, I'm not gonna give you a rule book. I'm not gonna add to the list of the things that you think you're supposed to do to make God happy. Because if I gave you my list, I'm gonna have a lot of things on there that are for me and they're not for you. There are some universal ones for all of us, but I'm gonna burden you with what God has been speaking to me and then that's what religion is. And we pass it down from generation to generation. Today, I'm gonna do something different. We're throwing out the rule book. We're not under the requirement of the law anymore. We live in the freedom of grace. I'm gonna ask you to do something different. I'm gonna ask you to ask God to search you. Search you. And to point out anything in you that offends him. Anything. And to ask him to lead you along the path of everlasting life. See, some of us in our sick, religious, twisted mind, we would rather have the law because we figure out where the loopholes are. That's what they did all throughout the Old Testament, the religious people. But when you say, God, search me and point out anything in me that offends you, there's no loophole. It's between you and God. And he shows up and he says, hey, what about this? See, when Jesus showed up in Matthew 6, he said, you've heard it say, don't murder. That was a commandment. That was a requirement of the law. Jesus said, forget murder. I'm telling you, don't be angry. See, when God searches you, he may find anger. He may never find murder. Congratulations, you're abiding by the law. But God says, but what about the anger? He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's one of those laws. He said, let's talk about lust. He said, look, you wanna do good stuff, that's fine. Let's talk about the pride and the, and, the, and, the, and the reasons you do what you do in order to get attention from other people. Let's talk about the insecurity. Let's talk about, like, God, just search me. I'm not worried about the law anymore. I'm not worried about the rule book anymore, God. I just want, I know how much you love me. I know how bad I am. I know how good you are. And so God, will you just search me and just point out anything in me that offends you and lead me? I'm not handcuffed. I'm choosing to follow you. I want to follow you. God, will you lead me along the path of everlasting life? I refuse to serve God like a, like a child who obeys an abusive father. I'm gonna serve him like a child who wants to please their loving father. So God, search me. I don't, I don't even care what the law says. I just want you to search me 
deal with me. And let me tell you something, it's a dangerous request. It's a dangerous ask because it never goes away. You serve God 37 years and he shows up one day and says, what about this? What about this? You can master the sex, drugs, and the rock and roll and God says, but let's deal with that pride. Let's deal with those thoughts. Let's deal with those motives. Let's deal with those intentions. And he never starts, never stops working on us. Not so he could love us. He's crazy about you because you said, God, I just wanna honor you. I wanna use my body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. So God, today, search us. Search us, God. Point out anything in our lives that offends you. Let's pray. Bow your heads.